Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. I'm Todd Benton, your host this week, and Helen Hillix is our co-host. Today's topic, the new science of social change. What is it? And can it help us make the transition to a sustainable future? Billions of dollars are invested by corporate marketing departments, public relations firms, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations in attempts to change social behavior with outcomes that are not necessarily beneficial to society and the planet. Can a new science of social change put the same technologies, tools, and strategies that have been used for centuries to influence the masses to work for the benefit of humanity? Helen and I will speak with Joe Brewer, a complexity researcher and evangelist for the field of culture design. What is culture design? Can it help us to create a shift in the whole human culture toward a livable future? Though it might sound grandiose, we'll talk with Joe about why he feels that now is the time for such a science and why it's so urgent. We'll also talk with him about how memes spread and we'll even pick his brain on spreading the inner revolution. Uh, but before we speak with Joe, we've got a couple of interrevolutionary news items. So, Helen, take it away. You know, I didn't know you wanted me to read the news today. Oh, um, I can but, do it. But I've got them. Okay. Okay, here we go, guys. Interrevolutionary news. Donald Trump picks climate change skeptic Scott Pruitt to lead the EPA. That's from The Guardian, and it came out this morning, and we thought that was particularly appropriate for today's show. And we're, you know, we're shaking our heads along with, with many of you. President-elect's latest cabinet pick is a clear signal of Republicans' desire to dismantle Obama's climate legacy. Scott Pruitt, attorney general of Oklahoma and a skeptic of climate science, has been chosen by Donald Trump as the next administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm sorry, I can hardly keep a straight face when I'm reading that sentence. Pruitt, a Republican, has been picked at a time when he is part of legal action waged by 28 states against the EPA to halt the Clean Power Plan, an effort by Barack Obama's administration to curb greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired power plants. His nomination is a clear signal of Republicans' desire to dismantle that uh, legacy of Obama's. Pruitt has called the EPA's rule, quote, unlawful and overreaching, end quote, and has cast doubt on the overwhelming scientific evidence that human activity is causing the planet to warm. Another quote, that debate is far from settled, he said in May. Scientists continue to disagree about the degree and extent of global warming and its connection to the actions of mankind, end quote. Environmental groups say that Pruitt was a puppet of the fossil fuel industry, pointing to his intervention in 2014 to push back against air pollution standards by using a three-page letter penned by Devon Energy, one of Oklahoma's largest oil and gas companies. Having Scott Pruitt in charge of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is like putting an arsonist in charge of fighting fires, said Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club. He is a climate science denier who has attorney general for the state of Oklahoma regularly conspired with the fossil fuel industry to attack EPA regulations. Nothing less than our children's health is at stake, end quote. So, I, we could talk about this article the entire day, but I think we'll just move on to the next one because I know that Joe is going to have some comments about all of that, and uh, all I can do is shake my head. 
The second article is United by Fear. U.S. Muslims and Jews join hands. This is in the New York Times from December 6th, 2016. Donald J. Trump's election victory has unleashed a flood of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, but also led to a surprising new alliance. American Muslims and Jews are banding together, jolted into action by a wave of hate crimes against both groups and by Mr. Trump's threats to bar Muslims from entering the country and register those living here. They are putting aside for now their divisions over Israel to join forces to resist whatever may come next. New groups are forming and interfaith coalitions that already existed say interest is increasing. The groups are targeting not just clergy, but also lay people, including business executives, students, and women. Often the initial goal is simply to overcome stereotypes and get to know one another as fellow Americans. Nearly 500 Jewish and Muslim women, many wearing headscarves and skullcaps, gathered on Sunday at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, in what organizers said was the largest such meeting ever held in the United States. It was the third annual conference of the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, a grassroots group that now claims 50 chapters in more than 20 states. The first conference two years ago drew only 100 people. And I've been trying to contact the leader of that group, and they say that they're just overwhelmed with requests request to participate. So it may be a month before I hear back from them. So that is really, really exciting news. The women spread out inside an enormous sports complex and meet in clusters to study sacred texts of the racquetball on the racquetball courts, practice self-defense techniques in the dance studio, and in the bleachers discuss how to talk to friends whose impression of Islam had been been shaped entirely by news of terrorist attacks. Over lunch and in the hallways, they traded stories about the latest ugly outbreaks back home, a brick thrown through the window of a Muslim-owned restaurant in Kansas, apartments of Muslim families in Virginia hit with eggs and graffiti, swastikas scrawled on synagogues and in a playground in New York. Sisterhood chapters keep track of the incidents on their Facebook pages and other social media. Ignorance is one of the key triggers of hate, said Cheryl Olitsky, the group's executive director, in her opening remarks. We need to show the world that we are Americans. We are here because we love each other and we're overcoming hate. And I just thought that is so exciting. They were talking about how they, they don't talk about the, th- the disagreements. They only focus on the things that they have in common and that they, their main focus is treating each other with compassion and respect and overcoming prejudice one woman at a time. And I thought that was such an interrevolutionary idea and, and a very exciting development. And we see, we're seeing more and more of it. Yeah, it's so cool um, and so vital right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to introduce Joe. Joe, I first learned about you because I'm on Medium, which is Twitter's blogging platform, for those of you who don't know about Medium. Um, and I, and uh, your article, The Mental Disease of Late Stage Capitalism, showed up as recommended reading for me. So I went ahead and read it. And it really spoke to me. And it led me to follow you and read many of your other articles, uh, including A Social Movement for Broken People and The Connective Intelligence of life. So I wanted to start with you, you know, uh, talking a little bit about the mental dis- disease of late stage capitalism. But first, I, I thought it would be good to provide a little context about 
what you do and how you got there. And I have your biography, but I think it would be better if you just shared with us, you know, who you are, like what you're up to and a bit about how you got to doing what you're doing. Yeah, I'd be happy to provide that little bit of context. I usually like to start telling my story by saying that I was born and raised on a chicken farm in rural Missouri and that I graduated high school about the time the internet was becoming a thing, you know, like 1995. So uh, the internet was just starting to become available to the public in general. The reason I like to start that way is that it helps give a bit of a background to why I could not help studying and learning about dozens of different academic fields when I went to college. It just I was knowledge starved by being a nerdy kid in a, a backwater town where there was very little access to information. And uh, so I, I studied things like philosophy and physics. I, I did theater and dance. I also have a background in the martial arts. So there's this combination of fairly intellectual things as well as fairly body-based physical things. And what I've been doing in my, I wouldn't even call it my career, but really more my life's work, is helping to connect the dots between different areas of existing knowledge that show people what it really means to be human and just how much we already know about how to solve the world's hardest problems. So I've been an active researcher and as a physicist and as a, I'm also trained as a climate scientist. So uh, I could talk a bit about that from a scientific point of view. But then later uh, I delved deeply into what are called the cognitive and behavioral sciences. So the study of human thought and behavior. And uh, as we'll unpack a little bit today, uh, those different fields all have tremendous relevance to the kinds of problems that Helen was alluding to in the news reports today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, gosh, I'm, I'm, there's so much to cover. I, 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 do you want to talk about the article? Because I know it really struck a chord, the mental disease of late-stage capitalism, and maybe that could be the jumping-off point for some of the you know, ideas about culture design. And, and um, So could, do you yeah. think you could summarize what you, what you said there? Sure. The, the simple explanation is... Uh, it really comes from a conversation I was having with a few personal friends around the time I wrote the article. When I kept noticing friends of mine who were going through rather significant economic hardship, having a difficulty paying their bills, their student loan debt was increasing, uh, unable to find stable work. And the thing that prompted the article was people in that condition, which there are hundreds of millions of people just in the Western world who are living that way on a daily basis right now, billions of people who have that plus even more extreme things. And what my friends would then say to me with that as what was going on for them is they would say, Joe, I, I really appreciate your ability to just honestly share with people on social media what you're going through because I would just be too ashamed. I'd be too embarrassed to talk about it. And because I've studied how social norms work and the power of emotions for shaping behavior, I recognized right away that this feeling of humiliation and shame that was causing people to censor themselves was really significant. And so I wrote that article having no idea how popular it was going to become. It, it went viral and was read by hundreds of thousands of people, but I had no idea that was going to happen. When I wrote it, I was really just trying to convey that there were these large system level patterns of economic hardship 
and that a large number of people were having a shared experience of hardship, but their own sense of shame and humiliation was keeping them from making a human connection with other people who were in that same struggle. So what I described as the mental disease of late-stage capitalism was that we're dealing with a 400-year-old economic system that is in the process of dying and is causing significant hardship, but inwardly people experience it as a failure in themselves rather than a failure of the system itself. And so the mental disease was this expression of self-failure, self-shame, and humiliation, and then the social consequences of people not talking about it. Right. And uh, I've experienced that in my lifetime as well. Like, if you're not like a rock star in terms of your career and making a ton of money, then, you know, it's, there's that, there is that kind of internal, like, you know, what, what am I, am I worth anything? You know, what, (laughs) so I can definitely relate to that. And I did. And uh, so that's why, why we're talking today. So um, can I throw something in here? Sure, sure. Um, I think it really relates Joe, also to the innerrevolution.org's three principles, again, of oneness, accountability, and mutual support, in that when, and this goes for drug addiction and so many other things, which may also be part of late-stage capitalism, we can hope anyway, um, that the shame prevents us from feeling our oneness. And then we all are isolating and suffering way more than we need to suffer if we really realize that we are all one and that none of these problems, whether it's financial hardship or drug addiction, is a singular individual problem. It's all a problem of the collective. Yeah, and you've probably come across the work of Johan Hari, who wrote a book last year called Chasing the Scream. And he gave a TED Talk and wrote a Huffington Post article in the summer last year, both of which exploded on the internet about how everything we know about addiction is wrong. His Huffington Post article was read by millions of people. His TED Talk had 3 million views in the first 48 hours. I mean, just they, and the basic lesson that he learned from what was really a, a reconstructed history of the U.S. drug war, but he came across the problem of addiction in the middle of his research, was that um, addiction is not caused by chemical dependency. Addiction is caused by lack of human connection. Yeah. And that the, the way to deal with addiction is to reconnect people with each other. But what we do is exactly the opposite. We imprison people and remove them from society and say there's something wrong with them and criminalize them for using addictive drugs which reproduces the conditions of, of physical isolation and emotional separation that are the root causes of addiction. So it's a very deep well, and, and, connection. And doesn't this directly relate back to capitalism in that, you know, what, what a great many, you know, perhaps, I don't want to be separating into political parties, but a lot of people blame people for being poor rather than look at the systemic reality that it's the it's the fragmentation of our culture and our society that we're not taking into account the needs of the whole when we're we're developing our financial system you know we're just taking into account the needs of the rich it's the same dynamic i think yeah and you even said it the fragmentation of our social landscape I, you worded it slightly differently but i was really struck by that word fragmentation because 
most people don't know the history of capitalism and that economic historians generally agree that the beginning of modern capitalism was in the 16th century in Britain in what was called the enclosure movement. And the enclosure movement was a process of fragmenting ownership of the land where they built walls and enclosed them off for private ownership of farmland and broke the community ties that existed among the peasant farmer culture for a thousand years before that. So it physically divided people and then forced them to compete for a monetary earnings based on crop yields to be able to pay rent for their land. So the very beginning, the genesis point in history of modern capitalism was a process of literal fragmentation of communities of people into parcels of land. Wow. And we intensify that to the point now where we have all of these microcosmic consumer transaction experiences where we separate ourselves into little moments of atomized exchange and we're about as fragmented as we possibly could be as a culture. So I think that's a good uh, segue into, you know, what is culture design and how are you trying to change that, um, you know, that fundamental structure of separation into one of connection and because I know one of your other articles was the connective intelligence of life. So um, maybe we could, you could talk about what is culture design and how does that tie into uh, the, both the challenge and then the solution? Yeah, the basic idea behind culture design, if we just separate the two words apart, we can see it, is that culture is the collection of ideas, stories, social identities, moral values, social norms and behaviors, institutional structures, tools and technologies. You know, all of these things are what we call culture. And so design, when we add it to culture, design just means any approach to systematically solving a problem. So to, to put on the hat of a designer is to see a problem and then to design or engineer or create a solution for it. So culture design and its kind of general definition is to see problems that are based in culture, that come from culture, and that can only be solved by changing culture. And then to find systematic ways to, uh, to change culture so that those problems get solved. And there are a lot of detailed pieces of, of how this can be done. But I think if we start in that general way, then we can look at something like the fragmentation of communities. And why is that a problem? Well, it's partly a problem because part of being human is to be socially connected. Humans are the most social animal in the history of this planet. You know, if we made a comparison to ants, termites, bees, and wasps, what are called the eusocial insects, because they have this intensely social organizational structure to their colonies and their hives, they are not as social as we are. Uh, still, when ants are born, they very quickly are able to depend upon uh, built-in reflexes to help them to solve problems and make decisions. Whereas human beings are born functionally and structurally premature, and it takes us about 10 years of learning culture to be able to survive in the social landscapes of our worlds. So we are incredibly social, yet we've built economic, political, and cultural systems that are based on the idea of individualism and human separation. So the, the connectivity of human beings, the way that we um, the way that we evolved to be and what our natural condition is to be embedded within communities, this fragmentation is an indication of a problem. 
And culture design would be to bring the knowledge of what it means to be human and various different design tools to help solve that problem. Can I ask you, uh, Joe, how, how do you see the ego playing a part in, in what you've just discussed, that human beings are so dependent and you know so in need of connection and community and yet we fragment and you were saying we built systems on that idea of separation and you know the greed and the competition and all of that how, how do you see ego involved in that system i see ego uh, in a variety, I actually see it in several ways, but to just start the conversation about ego, I would begin with uh, the psychology of attachment, what's called attachment theory, which is that uh, there's a way of understanding how healthy relationships, healthy emotional bonds form between people, and also between people and their own multiple identities. So how do I relate to myself as, uh, as a man? How do I relate to myself as a professional? How do I relate myself to, as a husband uh, because I'm in a marital relationship? So I, I can have different emotional bonds with other people and with aspects of myself. And a healthy ego is an understanding, a, a conception of self that is based in healthy bonds to all of those other relationships. And what attachment theory tells us is that if people have unhealthy or weak attachments, so the emotional relationships are not healthy, then they have chronic insecurity, greater anxiety, uh, greater existential angst, which means they don't really understand what's going on or what to do about things. And so they have a lot of hardship and the clinging to a sense of ego, of, of needing things for themselves and being unable to resolve those needs comes from an emotional foundation of weak relationships. But doesn't that apply to the corporations? You know, the, the corporate ego is amazing. The political ego, the nationalistic ego, you know, it gets, you know, the ego of larger and larger groups comes into play as well as the individual ego. Yeah, we can talk about this in a couple of ways. One is what the purpose of advertising and marketing has been for the last 70 years, which is to systematically weaken people's emotional attachments, to actively encourage a confusion of what people need with what people want. So you might think you need that new car, really you just want it, but decades of marketing at you have confused those emotional signals. So we can look at it in that way, that this massive consumer marketing machinery is designed in a sense to weaken our sense of ego attachment and make us incapable of functioning in healthy relationships. If we had healthy relationships, we wouldn't need to buy all those goods and services. So to generate profit, we need to make people confused so that they need those things or so they think they need those things. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is how larger institutions like corporations or governments are the expression of shared narratives and aspirational social values. So when we look at the modern-day corporation, which has been described by psychiatrists and psychologists as behaving like a sociopath, meaning that it's incapable of making ethical or emotional decisions in a healthy manner with very specific consequences, that we basically are living in a culture that celebrates and even deifies something that is pathological. 
So the more that we put ourselves into the cultures of those organizations, the more we take on the features of those organizations and they hurt us and they cause us to hurt other people. So there are very deep multi-layered relationships between ego of self and uh, these egoic conceptual metaphors that we apply to other forms of social organization. Well, how how do you how do you connect the design of a culture to dismantling the domination of the ego in the ways that you've just described? Right at the core of culture design is a recognition of of a couple of things. One of them is that culture is something that scientifically would be called a complex adaptive system. What that means is that it's made up of a lot of interacting parts and that you can't reduce the behavior of the entire thing to the behavior of its parts. So when we think of culture in that way, the first thing that that tells us is that culture design cannot be done in a heavy-handed, top-down sort of way. It has to be co-created collaboratively because you have to have many different people across a cultural system collaborating to create a new way of being in their culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that means that there needs to be a way of cultivating healthy relationships between and among all of those people. So culture design, or um, the other phrasing I've used is the intentional science, the science of intentional social change, where people have shared intentions, but currently they don't know how to manifest those intentions. So most people want to have you know, economic opportunities for themselves and their families. Most people want to be able to raise their children in safe environments that help them to grow up to be healthy and functioning adults. People have these intentions, but they can't act out those intentions for important reasons that have to do with the cultures that they're embedded within. So to make those intentions come out, we have to have specific interventions that we can do each step of the way to heal our relationships with ourselves and each other that increase our ability to collaborate and trust each other so that we can together create culture. And then as we do that more and more, we amplify the ability that we have to change culture over time. You know, it, it, I want to let Todd ask some questions. <laughs> I, I can't no, help it. I just have to say one more thing, that the more you talk, the more it's just mind-blowing to me, Joe, how your incredibly academic uh, way of understanding this complex and, and deeper than academic, I mean, but it's it's very intellectual and articulated so perfectly, and yet it it is so relatable and relates so directly to what the innerrevolution.org is doing in the idea of promoting the principles of oneness, accountability, and mutual support, because we are saying exactly the same thing, but in a very different way, which I think is, is, is exactly what you're talking about in terms of designing a culture, is that we have to collaborate. You know, we do this piece and someone else does that piece, and we all have to collaborate in order to design a culture, but we're on the same page. Page. You know, you're talking about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. That's what you're talking about, is that oneness is those healthy relationships and accountability is that we have to see how all these things impact one another, and they have to all be mutually supportive. Yeah, absolutely. There is deep resonance, and there's this unstated uh, insight in what you just said. The unstated insight is that Culture only exists because we create it. 
we enact it. It's like if if the world was literally a stage, as Shakespeare famously said, we would be acting out scripts of plays. And we could always change the script. So maybe right now we're doing Hamlet. Perhaps tomorrow we'll do Macbeth. But if we change the script, we take on different roles. We presume different contexts and challenges. And we identify as different characters. But the first thing we need to recognize is that culture only exists because moment to moment we're co-creating it. Mm-hmm. Recognize that we find we have tremendous power to change it. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. And we have we have access to the you know the tools or the the levers and dials, if you will, uh, of that change. You know, and I think that's what's kind of exciting and also. Um, I think fearful for people is they don't feel like they have their hands on that. If we realized we did, you know, and that it comes from that connection, those relationships, um, I think we, you know, we'd we'd sense that feeling of empowerment and be able to bond and you know build that kind of bottom up kind of movement rather than expecting it that it has to happen from the top down. Yeah, absolutely. And also we'd realize that culture doesn't just exist in ourselves. It exists through our relationships. So if I go off by myself into the wilderness and try to create a culture, all I'm going to do is embed myself in that forest that I'm in and establish relationships with all the living things there while the rest of humanity goes on doing whatever they're going to do. And so I wouldn't have actually changed the world. I would have just separated myself from it. So we have to do this in relationship with other people, and we have to become aware of the ways that we create culture moment to moment so that we can intentionally create the kinds of culture that we want and the kinds of culture that we desperately need to deal with the problems that are happening in the world today. Can you? I have a... Okay, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead, Todd. I'll ask this later. (laughs) All right. Uh, in your paper, Tools for Culture Design, you ask a question that's the exact question we in the inner revolution would ask. And you ask, as humanity gains the ability to intentionally guide social change, how will we ensure it is used for the highest good? So I, I'd like to hear your answer to that question. Yeah, first off, I would say that there are types of culture design that are being done maliciously mm-hmm. and in a secretive manner. There's quite a lot of intentional manipulation of public opinion, spreading of misinformation and lies, actively sowing the seeds of doubt and confusion. You know, we started off this this interview with a news report about placing a person who lies about the science of climate change, placing that person in a position of authority and integrity to lead environmental policy. So we're living in a time where people are actively confusing and cheating and lying and stealing for personal gain. And they're using our own cultures against us to do it. And so this question of how do we do this for the higher good, we really need to answer in two ways. One is the highest good to have personal moral integrity. And this is something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough in the 21st century, uh, which was a common thing in the early days of philosophy and what was called virtue ethics, how to live and be, how to become a, a virtuous person, that we don't talk enough about moral integrity. And you can really see that if someone like Donald Trump can become president, where every other word is a blatant lie and he doesn't even care that he's lying, he's just a pathological liar and we reward him by making him president. 
What that says is that as a society, not only do we not care about moral integrity, but we would happily piss on it in the, in the ditch and leave it for dead. That's about how much we, have, we value it collectively right now. Yeah. So this question of higher purpose is to answer questions like, how did that come to be that we would piss on moral integrity and leave it in the ditch to die? And what does it mean about how much we respect and care about ourselves if that is the standard that we hold ourselves to? How little do we respect? How little do we honor and appreciate? How little do we see the sacredness in ourselves and others if that's the place we've gotten to? And then the other way we need to answer this question is about the highest good we can do in the time that we're in. And right now we're in a time where the human population has exploded to over 7 billion people. It's currently around 7.4 billion people. There have never been that many before in the history of our species. We have now depleted half of the world's topsoils. We have now put enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to fundamentally change the weather patterns and the ocean current patterns. We've overfished and removed about 95% of all of the big game fish from the world's ocean. And I could go on and on and on. But the point is that we have broken our relationships with things we depend upon with our survival so badly that right now we are on a course with destroying ourselves. We are on a path to wiping ourselves out. So to apply culture design with the highest purpose would mean to preserve the richness of the entire living system of our planet and to recognize that as human beings, we really do get to play the role of God because we make up realities and we dream them into being through our cultures. So we have a responsibility if we have the power of gods to behave responsibly like adults And there was this amazing thing that happened back in the late 1970s when Joseph Campbell was doing his research for the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he realized that there was this archetypal story, the hero's journey, that he found in every culture whose mythology that he Mm -hmm. studied. Well, after he returned from all of that research and he started writing the manuscript for his book, he went back to the social research center at Stanford, where he worked, and he spoke with one of his friends and colleagues a fellow named Dwayne Elgin. And Dwayne is a personal friend of mine. He's probably about 70 years old now. And when Dwayne was in the room with Joseph Campbell, Joseph came in and told him about what he'd learned. Dwayne asked what he thought was a very simple question. He said, well, Joseph, if, uh, if humanity goes through this hero's journey, uh, which is also a rite of passage from childhood to adulthood, um, he said, if that happens in every culture, then where are we as a humanity? How far have we gone on those stages of development? And Joseph Campbell said, "Uh, I'm just studying mythology. It's not really my job to answer that question. And Duane was not satisfied with this answer. So for the next 40 years, and he still does this to this day, every time that he would speak in front of an audience, which he's done in more than 100 countries in the last 40 years, he would ask his audience, where do you think humanity is in the stages of life? And he'd ask people to raise their hand. Do you think we're toddlers? Do you think we're children? Do you think we're teenagers, like adolescents? Do you think we're adults? Are we elders? And he found that without exception, at least 90% of every audience for 40 years said that we were in adolescence. So the amazing thing is that all over the world, we know that we're behaving like children in an adolescent stage and that we're not behaving like adults. 
So our higher purpose right now is to have our culture achieve adulthood. And that is what we're struggling to do. And just like teenagers, like uh, teenage boys who get the fancy cars and uh, too much alcohol try to show off too much and they drive their cars into telephone poles, we're in that very dangerous stage of experimentation where we're very irresponsible. We have very strong ego needs and very strong hormones, very impulsive, but we're in a time where we need to behave like adults. Wow. My son is a teenager. He's uh, 13 years old. He just turned 13. So I can really relate to what you're saying and my own experience. And I know you have a child on the way. So it's, it's really uh, interesting. Uh, Helen, you had more questions, though. I want to make sure you. Well, I was just going to say about that. I mean, isn't, isn't that an interesting reality that people all over the world can see that we are dominated by ego? I mean, that's what's happening in terms of psychological development the ego is very powerful when we're teenagers it's all about me and and what i want without any you know without any accountability or mutual support or even the thought about the oneness yeah and there's this other body of research that shows when people pass the age of 40 It's not the same for every person, but statistically speaking, there's a general transition that moves from fulfilling things that are are self-accomplishments, like I want to become a doctor, I want to own my own house, uh, I want to start a family, things that are accomplishments for ourselves. And then after the age of 40, there's a general transition into what's called elderhood. And it takes place over a period of 20 years, roughly. It's between the age of 40 and 60. But after about the age of 40, people begin to think about legacy. They begin to do a lot more mentoring. They begin giving back a lot more to their communities. And they achieve this higher level of ethical and emotional maturity. And it's not that everyone does this, but just that there's a general tendency toward it. And I think one of the things that the baby boomer generation has failed to do so far is to behave like elders. They, too many of them are still behaving like young adults who are trying to fulfill their own ego achievements without realizing that they have a responsibility to become the carriers of wisdom and transfer their experience to younger people. Well, and this so shows up all over. I mean, the most of the corporate lead, I'm 67, so you're talking about me, um, not personally, but my age group. Uh, and you know, we are the leaders of the world. And look what we've done. You know, yeah. we don't we don't give a shit about anyone but our own pocketbooks. Yeah, and I just turned 40 about a, a little over a month ago, and I'm already feeling this. Like, I'm feeling myself being at a place where I'm much more gratified to see another person that I've helped make an achievement than to achieve something for myself. Because I achieved all of my goals that I set for myself as a teenager for my adulthood. And now I'm at a point where my goals have changed because I'm in a later stage of life and I'm starting to see the beauty and the joy, the satisfaction of giving to others. And it's very different than the way I felt five years ago. So it's very interesting to to see these large statistical patterns for large numbers of people, but then to recognize whether or not we are developing according to that pattern ourselves. It's very interesting. Yeah, you you asked me, you know, what questions I wanted to ask. The the thing that I wa- wanted to have you talk about, Joe, is 
you mentioned about we've got to collaborate in order to co-create, you know, a different script in order to design a different culture. And I'd like to hear you talk about what kinds of collaborative events or movements or behaviors, you know, how, how do we manifest this? There's how so do we many, find each other? <laughs> yeah, so many answers to this question. It's, it's kind of amazing that collaboration is, is actually very difficult. Uh, collaboration doesn't happen easily. But there are some things that we cannot possibly do without collaborating. Uh, an example would be like college or high school basketball. We have teams of five players playing against each other. If you have five individuals each trying to score the most points themselves against another team that's working as a team, even though it's harder, you have to learn to collaborate. You have to practice um, different configurations of team dynamic of positioning yourselves and working as groups and learning different plays and and running them in a coordinated manner. And there's a lot of work and effort that goes into that kind of collaboration. But one of the things that I'd say in answer to your question is that we have many, 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 many different ways to collaborate. So the better question to start with is why don't we collaborate more? if there are so many ways that we could collaborate. And then we can start going into some of the ways that we might do it. And I think part of the answer is that so many of our of the different parts of our lives have become fragmented in the ways we talked about earlier. They're so fundamentally broken that we have learned that we can't depend on other people. You know, rightly or wrongly, that's what we've learned. And that uh, we have to do everything ourselves And what that does is it leads us into patterns of chronic scarcity, chronic inadequacy, meaning we don't have what we need. And so for us to put in the extra work to collaborate would mean to do even more than we're doing now, and we're already doing too much and wearing ourselves too thin. So this chronic condition of not having people's needs met is what makes it hard for people to collaborate. But there's a paradox because collaboration is what is needed to fix that problem. So there's this chicken and the egg that happens there where people basically have to get to a place of fundamental urgency to do the work of collaborating and get themselves out of the mess. And a great example of this that's happened recently is the Native Americans who came together at Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. Some of those tribes have been sworn enemies for hundreds of years and have not come together under a peace treaty in hundreds of years, who came together in the last two months and formed peaceful alliances. Now, why did they collaborate? Because of this fundamental urgency that they absolutely needed to learn how to do it. Because the very last little tethers of sacred land that have not been taken from them are now being destroyed. And so they're at the place where they're clinging to the very last relationships to sacred land that would keep their cultures from being destroyed. And in that time of urgency, they're learning how to collaborate and they're putting in the work to do it. You know, social movements all over the world. I I totally see that. And we've been talking, you know, the innerrevolution.org has had these same ideas basically that you've had in a different iteration for years now. And we've tried reaching out so many times to other groups that are are fighting for universal human rights and basically trying to redesign culture, but they've got their movement 
and we've got our movement and somebody else has their movement. And I think that one of the things that one of the beneficial aspects of Trump being elected is that it's relating back to exactly what you said, that we have to find that urgency, that fundamental urgency. And we have found it. (laughs) You know, we have found that fundamental urgency. You know, I'm I'm working with a group of Muslims in San Diego um, with the school district trying to get them to do some sort of trainings in order to counteract the bullying that a lot of Muslim children are experiencing. And this is pre-election. Um, but And I kept saying to the leaders, you know, we need to get together and not have it just be Muslims. We need to get together with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we need to collaborate with all these other groups. And the leadership kept saying no. No, we need to just focus on our own. And, you know, I kept saying we're going to have such a bigger voice if we can collaborate. And then since the election, they've been, they have changed their tune and said we need to collaborate. So, you know, that's just a tiny little example of this. But, you know, what do you think about that, Joe? Yeah, it, it shows how important it is to conceptualize threat in a way that creates a gravitational pull toward unity. And so if I'm a Muslim right now, and there's talk of creating a a Muslim registry, which is an early stage of that moves toward genocide, that, uh, you know, we're already marking people off and designating their separation. That's an early stage of genocide. That as a Muslim person, that would cause me to feel a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear. Like I would feel threatened by that. And what's different about the situation with Donald Trump being president right now is that the same depth of threat is being felt by a large diversity of identities. Yes. And we're now about 50 years into full-fledged identity politics. If you think of things like the feminist movement or the environmental movement that go back I mean, they have earlier histories, but they really became formalized as social identities in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And then we have the gay rights movement, which really kind of took off in the late 70s and early 80s, um, and then so on and so forth, that these identities have created, um, they've reproduced the same patterns of fragmentation that exist in consumer culture. These are just other consumer, these are other identities to be marketed. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen that happen in the social movements. But what's happening now is there are fundamental, deep, urgent threats to each of them. And the threat is systemic in a way that each knows they can't address it on their own. So they have to do the work of collaborating. And we're already seeing that. So, um, uh, we'll How are see- you seeing that? Well, one way that I'm seeing it is um, I work with an organization called The Rules, And the rules um, collaborates with different social movements around the world. And so one of the groups that we're working with is a group called uh, um, Yo Soy Ciento Trienta Dos, which is um, Mexico's version of Occupy Wall Street. Mm. It started as a student debt resistance movement when they were taxing um, corn maize, which was causing food prices to go up. And so it had a chronic effect on peasant farmers and college students in different ways around the same time, and they mobilized themselves. And what they see with something like Donald Trump is they're seeing what's happening in the demonization of Hispanics and the perpetuation of the negative aspects of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, 
uh, and the things that have happened to them to create their chronic desperation. And they feel solidarity with Black Lives Matter. They, uh, some of them that uh, we're in conversation with are meeting this weekend in Austin, Texas to create a mural that's going to be on a big wall right in the middle of the city that is going to have symbolic messaging to communicate the struggle of Mexico being in solidarity with Standing Rock. And so they see that they have the same struggle. So I think that this deep feeling of, of urgency and of shared threat is it's fractal, meaning that you see the same pattern replicated at different scales and in different locations. And, I, and I'm seeing evidence of it in pockets all over the world. Yeah. Uh, there's real hope in that. You're giving, it's giving me chills. So there's something to what you're saying that we're seeing it together, you know, and we're coming together based on that, the urgency or the urgencies, like there's something has been triggered inside of us. Uh, that's, um, you know, that's being activated now that we know we need to come together. Yeah. And also the Trump phenomenon is actually not the beginning There are about a dozen other countries in the world that have fascist, authoritarian, dictator types of personalities that are rising to power. Uh, And so Trump is just the most symbolically important of those because of the United States' role as the largest uh, empire on the planet. It's also possibly the last empire that, uh, well, I think it'll be the last empire as a nation state. Uh, but, but we're seeing Donald Trump as this big threat, but it's really an indicator of a much more distributed pattern if we know what to look for. Yes, it's, it's worldwide for sure. I would like to use that segue about the uh, fundam- or foundational urgency, fundamental urgency, to bring us back to the point of the inner revolution uh, and how you see that in yourself and how you see that in others, that in order to redesign the culture, we have to have an inner revolution. Yeah, I wrote a blog article on Medium a couple of months ago, and the title was something like, What It Feels Like to Be a Designer of Culture. And what I described was what it feels like to be in a room with a group of people when a culture is emerging, and what it feels like to be in that moment. And I've facilitated quite a lot of one-day workshops in the last 10 years where I was teaching something like the cognitive science of political behavior or how to build trust with better communication. Or you know, There were different topics. But what would happen was I would have an agenda for the day, which would be whatever agenda I created, you know, my slideshow presentation or whatever. And then I'd get to a point where a topic would come up that was not on my agenda. Mm. So maybe someone would really feel like they needed to talk about the arguments they always have with their uncle over the holidays. Because we were talking about political thought and behavior, it was deeply personal for people. And so they couldn't help but, uh, but connect it to their personal lives. And so this connects back to the inner transformation in the way that our bodies as ways of making sense of things around us are the instruments of social change. And so if we are not cultivating an internal capacity to hold presence for change, to process emotions as they come up, then those emotions that we're not able to process will traumatize us. And that will diminish our ability to guide change intentionally. 
Mm-hmm. So the work on transforming ourselves internally is the foundational work to enable us to transform things externally. Because the internal and the external are not actually separated from each other. They're just different directions of emphasis. Yes, for sure. I like what you're saying about that we have to develop the capacity to process change. And we have to, I guess what you're saying is we have to develop emotional strength and resilience and uh, emotional maturity. And we have to have tools to be able to deal with what comes up in the moment that triggers us. And have support too, without a community of support. I mean, that's what's made our community so powerful is the mutual support that we have to, you know, intervene with one another when we're having egoic reactions or just give space to it or whatever, you know, but to do it in a loving, compassionate way and also a firm way, um, that's so vital. And I don't see that many people having those kinds of skills, you know, in the culture at large. Um, So that's a lot of what we're trying to offer. Um, And that's to go back to Standing Rock because it's just such a great uh, teacher for us right now. At Standing Rock, they have elders from all of the different First Nations cultures, and those elders are holding the space with prayer. And they are holding the space for ethical action by establishing very firm clarity around nonviolence and about loving compassion, and about singing songs that have spiritual significance in their cultures. So there is a group of people that together are holding the containers for the community to process emotions. And that's a wonderful metaphor for us to to draw upon for inspiration. I agree. We need to uh, get into what we're going to be talking about next week. Then we'll come back together, Joe, and and say goodbye, okay? (laughs) So uh, next week... Are you noticing more interrevolutionaries lately? Sorry, let me try that again. Are you noticing more interrevolutionaries lately? Are you one? An interview with Beth Green. The energy of coming together to fight for oneness seems to be permeating the world news lately. There is Wes Clark Jr. and is touching amends to the Native Americans. There are Jewish and Muslim women in the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom working to end prejudice one woman at a time, which we spoke about in our interrevolutionary news today. What interrevolutionary stories have you heard about? Are you beginning to feel the stirrings within yourself? Could you be an interrevolutionary too? Listen in to the interview with Beth and find out. She will share the new interrevolutionary handbook that she's writing to help train those of us who do resonate with the call. It promises to be another inspiring and energizing conversation between host Helen Hillix and interrevolutionary innovator Beth Green. So we've got about one minute left. Uh, I just really want to thank you, Joe, for uh, joining us today and sharing your wisdom. And uh, I, I would love to continue the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, thank you so much for inviting me on here. I, I feel like, you know, just as we wrap up today, for us to hold in mind where we are in history, it's December of 2016, and all of the things I said earlier about the population explosion and the destruction of our environment, um, that we're in a time of tremendous consequences. Mm -hmm. And one of the silver linings of that storm is that we're in a time where we are more empowered to create social change than ever before in the history of our species. And that's really a beautiful thing to keep in mind. Yes. I love how you always end on that upbeat note, Joe. I noticed that in the video also. I don't know if that comes from being born in Missouri. I'm from Missouri also. (laughs) Where? Missouri, yes. 
you know, that that farm lifestyle, it's like, you know, you've always got to maintain hope because there's something that could drag you down at any moment. So I love that. And I think that is so true that we have to see this as an opportunity, not a catastrophe, but an opportunity. And uh, we thank you so much for coming on, Joe, today. You were just a delightful guest, and we wish you all the best. And we would love to collaborate with you in the future if there are any ways that we might do that. We want to support. Yes. Yes, This is an all-hands-on-deck time. So uh, the more we can do together, the better off we're all going to be. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.